World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ore Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Good news for black workers in America. Thanks to a tight labor market, the age-old gaps between black and white employment and wages are narrowing. We ask whether this little boost to equality will last when the economic cycle cycles. And we got a makeover. Have you noticed? Our keen-eyed readers may have spotted our new font across our platforms. Today, a look at how we came to find the perfect economist typeface. First up, though. At the Nasser Medical Complex in southern Gaza this week, the World Health Organization led two missions to transfer 32 critical patients, including two children. This is the former emergency department of Nasser Medical Complex. And it's a death zone. A week ago, Israeli Defense Force troops raided the hospital, claiming they had intelligence suggesting Hamas fighters were hiding there. As the rescue took place, the fighting continued just outside. WHO staff tried to move the patients. But in limited light, the hospital has no electricity. It has no running water. The WHO estimated 130 patients and at least 15 doctors and nurses remained inside. Yeah. The patient has to be moved with an ambu bag. Yeah, with an ambu bag. Yeah. Okay. But officially, it declared the facility non-functional. How many more do we have? Ambulance. It's finished. Can we change for another and ambulance? That's why you know if you have to All of that is a microcosm of Gaza's healthcare system, or what remains of it. I've been speaking to doctors who've been in some of the most brutal war zones anywhere in the world, and they say that Gaza is simply the worst that they've ever seen. Nicholas Pelham is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. They're saying that when it comes to basics, whether it's the water supply or basic sanitation, there's nothing really there anymore. Gaza's been devastated. So what what do you mean by that? What is the worst that they've seen? What, What is the situation on the ground like at the moment? The doctors that I've been speaking to are really describing a landscape that's apocalyptic. I spoke to one, Professor Nick Maynard, who's a consultant surgeon from the UK. He came back last month from Gaza, where he'd been volunteering in a hospital. And he told me that hospitals were just simply overwhelmed. We were based at the Al-Aqsa Hospital 
in middle Gaza and I saw scenes in the hospital there that I would never have expected to have seen in my life in any healthcare setting. The overcrowding in the hospital was overwhelming. There was no ability to triage people at all because the numbers were so overwhelming. And there was no real ability to sort out which were the more urgent and which were the less urgent cases. On many days, we had very little equipment with which to operate. Sometimes we had no running water in theatres. So we had to scrub up just using alcohol gel. We couldn't sterilise our hands and arms properly. Sometimes there were no sterile drapes to put around the operation site when we were operating. So we had to make our own sterile drapes from various gowns and other pieces of cloth there. And it gets worse than that from uh, other doctors that I spoke to as well. I was hearing about snipers who were shooting into maternity wards and operating rooms, descriptions of white phosphorus falling on children's hospitals. And I think the one thing that was kind of particularly acute and made Gaza so different from other conflicts was that this was a population that was essentially trapped. They felt wherever they went, they were not going to be safe and there was just nowhere to escape. But the the conventions of war have it that hospitals are supposed to be the safe places. That's absolutely right. 19th century rules of war gave hospitals protected status. But I think we've seen increasingly in recent conflicts, this is just being simply ignored. It's been ignored in, in Syria and in Ukraine. And it's been particularly the case in Gaza. We know that tens of thousands have been seeking shelter in hospitals only to be fired on by tank shells and, and snipers. We're hearing that hospitals have what doctors are describing as death cracks um, resulting from the bombardment, that hospitals' capacity for patient care has been lost. And just because of the extent of the bombardment around the hospital, they've become death traps. And this you know, is something which is going to be there potentially for, for the long term. You've got this kind of heavy ordnance which is pounding into the soil, mixed with the rubble from buildings that have collapsed, and that's going to contaminate soil for generations. And many speaking to those in Gaza, including physicians in Israel and doctors going in as volunteers who are saying that they feel that this is all designed to make Gaza uninhabitable. And what do you make of that claim? It's really hard to know because journalists haven't been allowed into Gaza except as embeds with the Israeli military. So we're really dependent on secondary sources here. But from the accounts that we're hearing from Palestinians in Gaza, from those that are in communication with them in Israel, including physicians um, for human rights, uh, an Israeli watchdog, and from these doctors going in and out, it does seem that Gaza is becoming an increasingly hard place to live, not just for the present, but for the long term. And again, this is something that I heard from Professor Maynard. I think there is a systematic targeting and dismantling of the healthcare system in Gaza as part of their strategy of driving all the Gazans out of Gaza. And the same is being done to the schools, the universities, the churches, all the infrastructure that's required to lead a normal life in Gaza has been systematically targeted and destroyed. And what they're doing to healthcare workers and the hospitals, I believe, to be part of that overall strategy. Professor Maynard is, is far from a lone voice. Many other doctors that I've spoken to who've been in and out of Gaza and have seen what's happening on the ground describe similar pictures of damage that is going to shape 
Gaza's future for a very long time to come. What does Israel, what do the Israelis have to say uh, about what's going on now and, and these claims? There's a, a very different account that's coming from Israel. In its eyes, these hospitals and medical facilities have been turned into legitimate targets because they say they've been used as military bases and installations by their enemy, the Palestinian Islamist group Hamas, who until now controlled Gaza. They say that they've built an array of tunnels underneath these medical facilities. They've turned them into command and control centres. They've been using them as storage for weapons and as hiding hostages. And to some extent, those claims have been corroborated by American officials. But again, when you're asking for independent verification, it's been quite hard to come by. And there has been some scepticism about what is fact and what is part of the fog of war. But in the meantime, it sounds as if it's it's going to be very, very hard for these hospitals to continue to function at all insofar as they're functioning now. A quarter of hospitals in Gaza are still functioning. They're still dependent on whatever supplies they can get in from outside. And those aren't always getting across. So when they are getting across, they're not always reaching their destination. There are fears that kind of law and order is breaking down in Gaza. It really is a kind of picture of mayhem and chaos. Professor Maynard is heading back to Gaza in a few weeks and he's concerned by what he suspects is going to be even further deterioration in the situation. My big concern is I've no idea what we're going to find when we go back there. And my greatest fear is that there will be no functioning hospital for us to go to. And that, of course, would mean there has been a complete collapse of the healthcare system in Gaza. The death count after four months of war is already at 30,000 Palestinian lives lost, but the fear is that the final count could be far higher simply because there is no healthcare system anymore to treat the injured. Thanks very much for your time, Nicholas. Jason, thank you as always. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. For decades, it's been a grim fact of American life that black people lag behind white people when it comes to the world of work. They have higher rates of unemployment, lower wages, and a larger share of black Americans give up on trying to find a job altogether. But now, some of this seems to be changing. We've seen record lows in unemployment for African Americans, Hispanic workers and veterans, and workers without high school diplomas. The post-COVID economic boom in America is shrinking some of these racial inequalities, a fact that U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen pointed out earlier this year. Put simply, it's been the fairest recovery on record. We see this in gains not only for middle-class Americans, but also across demographic groups. 
such as the rapid decline in unemployment rates for Black and Hispanic Americans. The question is whether those gains will last in the face of an eventual economic downturn. At long last, America is starting to see some substantial improvement in long-standing economic inequalities, especially between white citizens and black citizens. Simon Rabinovich is The Economist's U.S. economics editor. The gap between unemployment rates, always higher for black Americans, is now the narrowest on record. The wage gap has also diminished. There's still lots of scope for progress, but there have been some important gains made in the last few years. So it sounds like there's several trends going on here. Let's dig into the numbers. Tell me quantitatively what's going on. So I think it's worthwhile looking at three different dimensions. Number one is the unemployment gap. Historically, the unemployment rate for Black Americans has been twice the level for white Americans. As of the end of 2023, the Black unemployment rate was about 5.2%. For white Americans, it was 3.7%. That 1.5 percentage point gap was the smallest on record. Even more striking is if you look at the labor force participation rate. So that's the percentage of adults who are either working or actively looking for work. Historically, has consistently been lower for Black Americans as of the end of last year. In fact, it was higher for Black Americans than white Americans, about 63% for Blacks, 62% for whites. The wage gap is also narrowing. Again, traditionally, Black Americans typically earning somewhere in the range of 75 to 80% of what white Americans earn. As of the end of last year, that was closer to 84%. And what's behind the changes? What's going on here? Underlying all of the changes is the fact that the economy has been really, really strong. It was very strong before the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic gave it a big knock, but there's been a really, really robust recovery. The labor market has been incredibly tight. In general, that has favored lower income earners. Black Americans are disproportionately represented amongst lower income earners. And so they have seen the lion's share of benefits coming from this tight labor market. So a lot of these changes then are just down to the forces going on at the blue-collar end of the market? The driving force, if you look at the bigger picture, is indeed the blue-collar end. There have been huge growth in jobs like driving delivery trucks, working in warehouses. But I think there also have been important improvements at the white-collar end as well. Traditionally, Black Americans have been very underrepresented in work, for example, in the tech sector. That's beginning to change a little bit. If you look at the past three years, in fact, Black Americans have gained more than 100,000 jobs in computer-related occupations. You're really beginning to see a ground shift in the way that employers are hiring and in the way that Black Americans who are receiving university degrees are able to find perhaps better quality jobs than they did in the past. So there's more to it than just sectors disproportionately staffed by black workers are doing well and therefore on average black workers are doing better. Yeah, look, it's not just about numbers. The obvious issue that we have to discuss is how racial discrimination plays into the fact that Black Americans traditionally have had a much harder time in the job market than white Americans. And the past couple of years, pandemic aside, have had other big changes in American society, starting with the wave of anger and then action taken after the murder of George Floyd back in 2020. It does seem that in the last few years, There have been more concerted efforts to try to ensure 
that Black Americans are better represented. So that might be having some impact. But I think given how longstanding racial bias and discrimination are in America, it is worth being hard-headed and saying that really the one thing that has changed quite dramatically in the last few years is not that discrimination has disappeared, but rather that the labor market has been much, much tighter than it has ever been before. One of the economists who I spoke to, Michelle Holder at City University in New York, said that any employer who may consciously or unconsciously have a bias, they are now penalized that much more for having a bias if it means that they can't hire people for jobs that are otherwise going unfilled. So I think that's having an impact on segments of the labor market that historically would be the most discriminated against. And which segments are those? One segment that I looked at was people who were formerly incarcerated. Black Americans have been disproportionately represented there, you know, jailed at rates roughly five times higher than white Americans. And traditionally, it's been very, very difficult for people like that to find jobs. I spoke with one group that helps to find jobs for formerly incarcerated Black Americans, and they said that things have become a little bit easier in the last couple of years. I spoke with one guy who had served 34 years in North Carolina with was released on parole a few years ago and is now working as a truck driver, earning with bonuses about $70,000 a year. It's the kind of job that I think even five years ago would have been very, very difficult to find. But sort of implicit in what you've said there is that if the labor market changed, then some of these trends might reverse as well. Or do you think there's a certain kind of ratchet effect going on here? I think that's the big crucial question. A rising tide lifts all boats, but when the tide goes out, what are you left with? And unfortunately, the way that it's often been talked about in America is that Black Americans are the last hired, but the first fired. When the economy has been really strong, employers have hired more people, and that's benefited Black Americans. But when they've begun to downsize, Black Americans have often borne the brunt of that. I think there's reason to think that this time might be a little bit different in that the economy has been strong not for a few months, but for a few years. If you go back to before the pandemic, you could say really for half a decade. And so it means that Black Americans who've been in work have been gaining the kinds of experience that make them increasingly valuable to employers. Secondly, just the economic structure has shifted. We talked about shifting demographics and the fact that a lot of white Americans are quite old. And then I guess the third point, and this one is harder to analyze, but is discrimination diminishing? Is that part of the explanation for the improvement in the fortunes of Black Americans in the labor force? And moreover, the more that Black Americans are working and gaining experience and gaining higher education, does that in itself begin to lead to a diminution of discrimination? So I'm not saying that things are going to be radically better, but there is reason to believe at least that things will be a little bit better next time the economy slows down. Thanks very much for your time, Simon. Thank you, Jason. You might not realize it, but different typefaces elicit different emotions. Adam Roberts is The Economist's digital editor. Three fonts with small strokes at ends of letters are found in books and newspapers. They're more trustworthy and authoritative. Sans serif fonts, which are plain, they're reckoned to be more modern and informal. And visual consistency gives readers a sense that they know where they stand. 
and as for The Economist, the font sets the tone for our journalism. And keen readers may have noticed that on the web, we have a new typeface, and that's spreading all through The Economist platforms in the weeks to come. So go on, tell me about this new font then. Well, there are two typefaces that form the visual core of everything that we publish. And we're calling these two new typefaces Economist Serif and Economist Sans. And for this, we've got a man called Henrik Kubel to thank. Henrik is the principal type designer at A2 Type in London. So I worked on fonts for the New York Times magazine, the independent newspaper in UK, and then also the Danish weekly broadsheet called Veganism. When the economist approach, I was very excited. When you draw fonts, you want someone who can actually work with them and make them shine after you deliver the works. And Henrik designed a new family of fonts for us. But Adam, why change the font? I mean, there was nothing wrong with the old one. The old one was great. There's nothing wrong with the old one. But so much is published today. And we think it's more important than ever that we look distinctive. Um, On Instagram and TikTok, especially, users scroll past posts in milliseconds. So it's easy to get lost in the blur. That's our creative director, Stephen Petch. And when you strip it all back, I mean, we're dealing with words and pictures moving otherwise. So having that strong identity is super important. Stephen consulted with Henrik throughout the entire process for designing the font. Up until now, we've been using off-the-shelf fonts that anyone can buy. But then, in early 2023, the font license was coming up for renewal. And we thought this was a great moment where we would decide to create something that's unique to The Economist. And so how did you decide on this new font? Well, The Economist has a rich history of typefaces. We go back 181 years now. And we thought it made sense to use that history as a starting point. So Henrik came to our central London offices to find inspiration. We looked at a vast collection of musty leather-bound volumes containing every printed version of the paper since first issue in 1843. Henrik documented how design has evolved and identified recurring themes. So aside from the very earliest editions, the structure has changed surprisingly little over the past decades. And they picked out four fonts from the archive that they thought were potential candidates. And with those new fonts selected from the archives, Henrik drew basic set letters and numbers based on each of those four fonts. He created samples. And those samples were presented to the editor-in-chief, Sandy Minton Beddows, and to the deputy editor, Ed Carr. The ones chosen all stood out as being quintessentially economists. And Stephen says there was some debate about those options. They asked if one font was too pretty, was it legible, did it have enough authority, and perhaps most importantly, will it work on our readers' screens? In the end, they agreed on Plantan as the winner, and this would then be further refined for our two particular fonts. Okay, so the font is decided upon. How do we get from that to the font appearing on the website and the app? Well, that took another 10 months or so. Over those months, Henrik designed the shapes of every individual character. There's there's about 920-odd individual glyphs in each font, over five font weights. It's a huge amount of stuff that's been drawn. It was a lot of work, and it was also super joyful. Henrik also had to choose how much of the original character he wanted to preserve. uh, we, We tweak a lot of details, and 
basically ironed out a lot of the historical things that was just being too archaic. And what we did, we contemporized the look and made it, let's say, future-proof, especially in small sizes, which optimized everything for screen. So we hope you like the new look. We've done everything we can, we think, to make the reading of the news more enjoyable. Unfortunately, the type has no power to make the news itself any cheerier. I think I kind of like the new look now. It's it's grown on me a little bit. When anything's new, people get a jolt. It does take a little while for anything new to become familiar and, and loved. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ari. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.